At City of Hope, its innovative treatments for cancer and groundbreaking research have saved millions of lives all over the world. This is City of Hope Radio with your host, Melanie Cole. With so many cancer myths and urban legends out there, it can be confusing as to what to believe. Here to debunk cancer myths while sharing cancer facts that matter, such as risk factors, prevention, and the research underway at City of Hope, is my guest, Dr. James Lacey. He's an associate professor at City of Hope's Division of Cancer Etiology and a member of the Cancer Control and Population Sciences Program. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lacey. So let's talk about some of the cancer myths that people have, because there are so many out there. In your opinion, what is the most single thing that you hear that people ask and you say, no, that is absolutely not true? A common question we're often asked is, do power lines or cell phones or radiation cause certain kinds of cancers, brain cancers? leukemia, things like that. And the motivation for that question from a lot of folks comes from a good place. You know, people, we tend to want to put a narrative on things. And for some of these cancers, we still, as a research community, don't quite yet know what causes them. Uh, and so I think it's just natural for folks to want to take things that they see as observations and ask, you know, are these things related? In essence, what people are doing are is being scientists. You know, that's the basis of the scientific methods. That said, it's one thing to notice those connections. It's another thing altogether to then systematically apply the scientific method and investigate, okay, do power lines cause leukemia? Are brain cancers caused by cell phones? And for those two things, the data that have been accumulated thus far from Lots of studies, lots of people all over the world indicates that the answers are really no and no right now. No and no. So I'm glad you brought up the cell phone because also with Bluetooth, people wonder if that's contributing to brain cancer. It's a good question. What's underlying that question as well is an interesting nuance of how we do these kinds of scientists. As you mentioned, I'm in the population sciences program. That means that one of our key priorities, one of our responsibilities, is to get out in the community and research what are people doing, what things are happening in the community, and how do those things relate to health and wellness and disease. Now, when we do that, we can, of course, only study things that exist, and cell phones and Bluetooth are relatively new. So when the public comes up with a very reasonable question, are cell phones causing brain cancer, they'll turn to us and say, give us the answer. At some point, we're having to play catch-up. We don't have the luxury of having 100 years worth of data that we can go back and mine quickly to say, what about people who used cell phones 100 years ago? Did they have an increased risk of, breast, of brain cancer? So in that sense, it's somewhat of a rush to try to get an answer as soon as possible while the underlying exposures in the life cells in the population are changing at the same time. It's a challenge. It's not impossible, but that's one of the reasons that you'll hear a lot of nuance and a lot of um, clauses and things saying, well, based on the evidence to date, uh, what we've seen so far. Now, for cell phones and brain cancers, this has been a great collaborative effort across the research community to try to assemble all the information thus far. And based on the best information right now, it looks like cell phones are not an important cause of uh, brain cancer. 
So with all of the availability now, and we'll get to some more myths in a while, but with all of the availability of information out there, people think they have a symptom of something, they run to the internet and it tells them what type of cancer that they have. They go to the doctor armed with printed sheets of things that they have researched, of treatments, of types of cancer, of cures, of all of these things. What do you think? as a physician of these citizen science, as it were, of people researching all of these things themselves and bringing it to doctors, claiming that they have the information? On the whole, I think it's great. It raises a couple of new challenges and a funny story that we can all remind ourselves of. There's a word for this that physicians have used for a long time called intern syndrome. And it's based on the idea that when medical students start reading the pathology books and all of the other medical specialty training books, they see new diseases, lots of diseases, lots of symptoms, and they start to say, hey, I have that. Hey, I've had that. And so there's this process of almost paranoia among interns and medical students who are finally learning about uh, all these new diseases. What your question says is what we've all noticed particularly because of the internet. Now we can all be interns and we can all have intern syndrome. And so it's perfectly natural, I think, for us to see things and to go to public websites and say, hey, that sounds like what I have, or hey, that sounds familiar. The good component of that is that empowers us as patients to be more proactive about telling our healthcare providers what we're doing, what medicines we're taking, what supplements we might be taking, what changes there might be in our lifestyle. So to the extent that this uh, interest by we citizens and we patients can help physicians get a better handle on what we're actually doing, that's a great thing. Now, for providers, there is that challenge of how to sort of manage expectations and talk about some of the things that I mentioned earlier. And that is that, you know, sometimes the best answer is we don't know. Sometimes the answer, the best answer to a question is, you know, I can see why you think that way, but in fact, the science says otherwise. So it's a challenge to manage. I think overall, it's a good thing, and it's a perfectly natural evolution of how we get information these days. And you don't think that docs are insulted when people bring this information, and especially when they bring the information to a mainstream or Western medicine doctor about all these alternative treatments and say, why aren't I trying these? Or why aren't you telling me about these? It's a good question. And I think we can all imagine how that conversation could be insulting to either the provider or the patient for a variety of reasons. If the patient comes in starting from the standpoint of this Western medicine approach is wrong and I know better than that. You know, if we're the physician sitting on the other side, that would be a little um, uh, off-putting. On the other hand, none of us as patients like to be sort of patted on the top of the head and say, no, no, you're wrong and trust me, I'm the physician. And we can all think back to parts of the the medical uh, environment over the years that have been that kind of paternalistic And we can all think of instances where a patient might have been too zealous in saying that, no, he or she has all the answers. What it really comes down to is communication. And I think the healthcare community, both on the research side and the provider side, is realizing that what this opportunity presents for us is a chance to remind everyone that, particularly about health information, it's communication, communication, communication. And I think it does offer that communication that we're able to now 
come a little bit more armed with information, some of it pretty good. Do you have any advice for listeners on finding quality information and being able to discern? We don't have a lot of time, Dr. Lacey, but being able to discern the fact from the fiction that they see on the internet. Yeah, in a short amount of time, here's a, here's the bullet, here are the bullet points that I'll provide for that. If you're looking at a bit of health information, particularly on the web, and it's crystal clear who wrote that information or created those data, where that person is, is it in a university, a hospital, an institution, and who's reporting it. Those are three key indicators that if you see those things present, you can start to dive into some of the details. And then does it pass the sniff test? Do other people tend to say the same thing? Uh, and then talk to your physicians, your healthcare providers, and, and go from there. It's a fun journey, I think. Well, I think so, too. And I, and I think that, you know, we all are looking for the good quality information and that really good advice so that we can feel like we're a part of our own healthcare and being our own best advocate. So in just the last minute, please give your best advice for those myths and facts and citizen science, as it were. At heart, I am a cancer scientist. And when folks ask me, how should I reduce my risk of cancer? What can I do to prevent cancer? It goes back to a lot of things that we've heard for a long time. Um, eat right, exercise as much as you can, don't smoke, um, apply sunscreen, Try to maintain a healthy weight, get your cancer screening, know your family history. And finally, and this really gets to that, uh, that key distinguisher, pay attention to your health. Each of us is probably the best gauge of our bodies, our health, our lifestyle. If something seems amiss, don't be afraid to mention it, to dig into it, to explore a little bit, and then start that conversation with your healthcare provider. Thank you so much. That is great information, Dr. Lacey. And for more information, you can go to cityofhope.org. That's cityofhope.org. You're listening to City of Hope Radio. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.